0: but that was a favorite.
1: um... Sorry, don't mind that. That's just the recording software. But yeah. It was a favorite
0: favorite game of
1: my grandmother. Bingo. Mm. I know my parents would would play something similar of that and try to play with with me and then, you know, the newfangled technology and all that stuff. But we are currently recording as we speak. So say hello to everyone that is going to be uh, listening in. Um, I'm Richard, obviously, because I'm the person who's hosting the podcast. And feel free to talk a little bit about yourself, Dr. Connolly, or Jane Connolly, I should say. <laughs>
0: Thank you for inviting me, Richard. So I'm Jane Connolly, and I have the privilege of serving as the, it turns out, the seventh president of uh, Cal State Long Beach, uh, the first woman to be uh, president. Yeah. And I've been in since 2014. So it uh, has gone by in a flash, although, um, you know, most... Uh, Presidents only last five or six years, so I feel like I'm on the uh, still on the upswing. So I'm enjoying the job very much.
1: I'm so glad that you are because you have. I think you have made a very deep impact of what you've done in the CSU system, especially in Long Beach. So I'm I'm personally curious of uh, myself, especially starting the conversation. How did you get to being the president of the CSU system from? Uh, I I read a little bit about your background as a bachelor's of art psychology and then going into psychology. How did that transition into, I want to go into CSU administration?
0: (laughs) Well, you know, life is filled with many serendipitous uh, things. So you're right. I was a psychology major and then got a PhD in psychology. And, you know, at, at each stage of my career, I was really happy with what I was doing. I loved being a professor. I was almost entirely teaching doctoral students, although occasionally I teach intro to psychology or developmental or abnormal to undergraduates, which I enjoyed. Mm -hmm. But uh, then at a certain point, actually I was at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, I'd become a full professor and it was just kind of my turn to be the department chair. So it was no big honor. This was more of a rotating thing.
1: That's interesting. I never heard of a rotating dean of sorts.
0: (laughs) A rotating department chair, it
1: was. Department chair, sorry, sorry.
0: And um, it's because most faculty members don't want to get into administration. They love Mm. their research. They love their studies. They love their students. They don't want to do all the, you know, right, functionary things that administrators do. But uh, so so I accepted that I was elected. So I accepted to be department chair. But it turned out as a psychologist and department chair, what department chairs do all day are they solve problems, you know, mm, and that's what mm-hmm, psychologists mm-hmm. Do. they help people solve problems, right? I was, I had a special expertise in family therapy at that point. And what I conceptualized the department as was a family in terms of all the processes, you know, who's in, who's out, who's in charge, um, you know, who's the favorite, uh, all the other all things that go on in families. So I actually enjoyed being a department chair, really from an almost scholarly perspective. I thought this was kind of Mm -hmm. fun to look at all these, it it was difficult, but it was fun to look at all these processes and interpersonal relationships from the lens of a psychologist. So uh, I shared that because that becoming department chair was not a plan, it was just, it was an obligation. Like, okay, it's your turn, (laughs) do it. But then the um, dean of my college, asked me to be his associate Dean for research. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I thought, well, that will be interesting. That's something new. By this time, you know, I'm a full professor. I've been a professor, I've been in higher ed now for maybe uh, 14 years, you know, so I was pretty well established. And so then I'm an associate Dean of a college and then I get recruited to be the Dean of a college uh, at Texas A&M. But Mm. what I want to emphasize was that I'm in a relationship? I'm married to another psychologist, another professor, right. who grew up in Texas, and he was kind mm. of tired of living in Nebraska because it's so cold. So mm-hmm. when I was recruited for this Texas A&M job, he said, "Oh, let's move. You know, <laughs> I want to get out of this weather." So you know, it's not as if I had this grand plan, right? But, you know, to become a dean and then what? What else was after that? So we moved to Texas A&M, and we were there almost ten years, and I enjoyed it. Very much. But I was at a decision point in my career there because deans had 10-year uh, terms. So They I, do.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. That, so I don't know if they still do, but at that point they did. Um, so it was at nine and a half years and I was thinking, well, what do I want to do? You know, Do I want to go back to the faculty? That might be fun. Do I want to do something else? And then really out of the blue, I get a call from UC Santa Barbara that invites me to uh, apply to be Dean there. Uh, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. my husband and I, Kali, Kali is his name, uh, went to Santa Barbara. And you know, if you go to Santa Barbara, you think, wow, everybody should live in Santa Barbara. This is <laughs> a place.
1: Beautiful beaches over there. Very yeah. beautiful beaches.
0: <laughs> and on top of that, it's UC Santa Barbara. And so right, if you right. of um, higher ed, you realize that UC is a premier system
1: Right, so I, right. I was
0: really uh, curious. I mean, I'd read about UC. We had, um, you know, friends and so on and so forth. So, anyway, we, we made that transition in 2006. No. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was enjoying my time there as a dean. And here's the, another part of serendipity that it was completely unexpected. I got a call from the president of the UC system.
1: UC system. Oh, wow. Because I'm in UC, right? <laughs> i right.
0: I done some things at the system level, you know, a couple of committees I chaired and blah, blah, blah. But he said, I want you to go to UC Riverside and be the interim chancellor there. So this was, mm. this was surprising. I mean, I knew the president, his name, was, his name is Mark Udoff, but I was really blindsided by this invitation and I thought well this is this should be interesting being the chancellor of a UC uh, even an interim you know I thought well this All would right. be a great um, experience but that that decision to accept that assignment um, really is what propelled me to be president at CSU Long Beach because mm. guess whose place I was taking at UC Riverside Timothy White's place Timothy ah. White, chancellor of the UC system Mhm. So um you know he was over now and by that time he goes to Long Beach now I'm in Riverside I'm doing stuff but obviously he knew about what I was doing and he was hearing about what I was doing at his his old stomping grounds and so when the uh when King Alexander the previous president at CSULB uh decided to leave to go to LSU I got right. contacted immediately to apply to be CSU president CSU Long Beach president so I share that because it's, you know, some people have a career where they, they start out and they go, I know, I want to be a, you know, fill in the blank. Right. I just, knew, I just always knew I wanted to be really good at whatever. <laughs> and so and then yeah. the other thing I knew was I wanted to explore, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if somebody offered me, you want to be consultant to the U S army. I would say, yeah, because I thought, what do I know about that? That would be interesting. Right. So, um, so I, you know, other people have different ways of managing their careers. I, my way of managing my career was to take advantage, uh, when doors open.
1: And right, right.
0: Just, just walk through them and have tried to do, um, uh, the best I, I can. And, uh, you know, I had, I had other, you know, as a psychologist, I was very active in the American Psychological Association. Um, right. I had leadership positions there, so I did have. You know, I had some training, and I got a chance to watch a lot of other people about how they handle meetings and how they made decisions. But uh, I tell you, being a president of uh, any university, but certainly Long Beach, and certainly at this time, has a very challenging, um, very challenging job for any university president. And public university, you know, everybody's got their own value work, but public universities. that are quite dependent on state funding, you know, that adds a whole other dimension.
1: Right. Like what type of red, like, if you don't mind me asking, of course, what type of red tape uh, politics do you have to deal with especially dealing with like a statewide CSU system? I mean, because I assume, you know, there's some level of interaction of, you know, governors and representatives that are probably checking in with the CSU systems or the CSUs. How is that like? you know, in your environment. I'm, I'm curious personally, myself, because going into science policy, I'm gonna to have to do a lot of communicating with a wide variety of audiences, Exactly. So,
0: no, it's yeah. A good, it's a good question, Richard. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have, you know, foundational funding is from the state. And mm-hmm. so we, my view is that my job is to keep my local representative, state representative, and the governor, I don't get to talk with him regularly, but uh, mainly, various assemblymen, assembly persons and senators to you know, keep telling them the story about our students, right. like what are the students' needs or, and our accomplishments, and what are we using this money for? I just read a study um, that will be published in a, actually in a couple of days, I think. That's- Ooh, showed,
1: that's gonna be fun. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, it, it's not in science, so it's not your right, brother, right. But but it showed that if you looked at for every dollar, the state of California invested in the CSU, Now, this is writ large, so 23 campuses, Uh, they got at least, they got somewhat more than $6 back. Oh, wow. So, you know, sometimes Mm. legislators and maybe the general public think, well, the university is always asking for money, but really the university is a generator of uh, money. You know, just think when you graduate, and um' and that six plus dollars is just kind of direct costs. if you add right. if you add what like what you will make over your you know you get a cSU degree, then you get another degree what what will you make and pay in paying taxes and and mm-hmm. and in services over your career it it goes from every dollar that the state invests in us to get all over twenty three dollars back so there's not many investments like that so right. if the investment and in, so my I'd say my relationship with legislators is to be a resource of information and to keep reminding them that they're building their state by rep- by investing in uh, higher education. Th- this is what, this is where the innovation comes from, right? The discovery. This is where, you know, college educated people, they don't go to jail. They don't use social services. They're rarely unemployed. So these are the more people we can get through high quality education, the better off our communities are. So, you know, it's, it's challenging. I mean, not most of the state legislators are really nice, uh, but not all. Sure. Of Some of them have, you know, a chip on their shoulders. Maybe they didn't do so well in college. so They don't like college presidents. Um, mm-hmm. But overwhelmingly, they, you know, they're as committed to the welfare of their Constituents, as we are committed to our students, right. but it, it is a it's a it is a part of a job. And actually, I just we just finished a week or so ago what we call Advocacy Week. So this year, usually we go to Sacramento, and then we usually go to uh, Washington D.C. to talk to our congressional uh, folks. But this year, of course, we did it on Zoom. Right, right. You know, it's a lot of work. You got to be prepared. You got to know what you're asking for. You got to be ready to defend it. Um, mm-hmm. But you know that's part of that's part of being a state university. You, you have to keep reminding the state legislators and the governor that th- this is a great investment for them mm-hmm. to make. They, this is not they're not they're not doling out money and it's going nowhere. This is this is building their their mm-hmm. state economy and their state civic uh, welfare.
1: It also must be hard because you know we're we're dealing with an ever-increasing polarizing environment, a political environment, and top to bottom. Then it goes to how we view our universities, and then uh, it gets a little complex. And that's one of the reasons why I'm going to science policy in particular. It's We need effective c- communication in the sciences. We need, we need a way to sort of, in many ways, democratize the sciences and make sure that everyone gets gets what they need but also understand what where we're coming from as well yeah I, I, yeah especially yeah, especially from my sort of background and whatnot it's been it's been an interesting journey at best uh, so i i know uh for you you've you've always uh you didn't have necessarily a grand plan for all of this but <laughs> you did go for opportunities and whatnot do you have any advice for a person like me who's going into, say, you know, their up, their upper upper <laughs> uh, education, which in this case would be a PhD, and like, what type of, like,
0: yeah? Have you decided where you're gonna go? Or have you just made a decision, Richard? Where are you
1: go? <laughs> <laughs> the good news is, I got into UC Davis. Um, oh, good. That's an excellent
0: school. Excellent school.
1: So far, I'm most likely going to Davis, but I'm still open to other colleges. I mean, it's also been hard as well because I'm getting I'm unfortunately getting the slew of rejections at the moment from the other schools, but you know, All it takes is one school to say yes, you're in, and then
0: well, and Davis, Davis would always be a good choice. I just right exactly, yeah. You know, I think um, I I I do want to comment though in the role that you imagine that you that you're preparing yourself for in terms of science policy. You know, we've gone through a period of time, um, and it, it it's not just the last four years. It's 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 a growing trend to not trust science. To see somehow elitist and somehow not for the common, the so-called common person, whoever that is, I don't know. Right, right. Um, And this is so dangerous for our democracy and so dangerous, as we've seen, for our health. You know, when when people, you know, think that wearing a mask is somehow a political statement, it's it's just craziness, and it's a lack of understanding of science you know, I, I just cringed when Dr. Fauci uh, was under attack because, right. you know, the science was evolving. We've never seen a pandemic like we we're mm-hmm. going through now. And so, yeah, did he first say, don't wear a mask? And then later he said, I think you better wear masks, you know, mm-hmm. but that's the way science is. It's it's a it's a process of, that is open to change. Right. And really open to, uh, improving uh based on evidence and somehow right. as you say the polarization which is ideological it's not based on evidence it's based on right. fear it's based on opinion it's based on conspiracy and it's also in my view which is you know i don't pretend to be the expert here i think it's right, based right. on, a, on a, a a real kind of anxiety, and I said fear before, fear of change, but people are afraid that they're so, that, that they're imagined, um, you know, ideal period when white people got to sit first on the bus, you know,
1: right. It was right.
0: the ideal time. And they're afraid of losing status. And if you read the book, I just finished the, uh, almost finished the book uh, by um, Isabel it's called cast and it's, um, and it really illustrates that even uh white people who are kind of maybe underemployed or you know lower middle class and maybe you know they've always felt like but they were white so mm-hmm. that made them better and right. that is now being threatened and i'm really imp- impressed and convinced influenced by her that this is part of this great polarization that we have to come to grips with the fact that we can be, uh, you know, a, an excellent, happy, prosperous, healthy, multicultural society, and nobody's got to be a loser. It,
1: right, right. All be
0: winners here. This is not a pie. You know, society is not a pie. It's, mm-hmm. it's really about building something together and building something great. And, you know, the role of science and technology as we move forward is absolutely key. I mean, it's huge. So right. I think you've chosen a you know, an amazing uh, path uh, to pursue. Thank you.
1: Like, uh, to take inspiration, right? I'm not sure if you've, kept up with the political news, but Andrew Yang, for example, is running for New York, New York. Mayor. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm from he, New
0: York City. So I was very interested in that. Yeah, Right.
1: And he's applying the sort of same logic of you know, the IB, but also applying science and technology to address, applying a uh, economical solution to solve a problem that people have genuine concern to, which is automation. While yes, science and technology in many ways, takes away jobs in some sense they also provide back other jobs in different ways being able the question is very holistic in that sense is that how do we train how do we train people to peacefully transition into the new environment that we're in to and then minimize minimize what struggles that people deal with because people unfortunately do struggle with it's uh, it, it's a complex issue i'm sorry to say but like uh, in many in many ways, we need to apply new solutions in order to help those who are sort of who are in different fields with different environments and whatnot. How do we transition into that? And I don't know that's that's a lot for what I'm thinking about currently. There
0: will be plenty of jobs in the future. But you know, I remember some movie I watched a long time ago said, "You know, the factories that made buggy whips." the last the last factory standing probably made the best buggy whips in the world but that we don't need buggy whips anymore what else could we make you know um right. and, <laughs> uh, and this notion that we have to hold on mm-hmm. to a past and that we are not called to learn new strategies and, um uh, get ourselves reskilled or upskilled or you know pursue higher education i think that's kind of a cop out and but it's being expressed in these really kind of hateful, you know, uh, racist and homophobic uh, ways, and uh, again, conspiracy theories, which is the exact opposite of, you know, science-based or at least evidence-based uh, approach. Uh, <laughs> yeah. because you can be evidence-based in the humanities too, right? It's not it's not just science. So um, that's what's um, right. Yeah, that, that's what's troubling about the current situation and you, your your lead question was about, you know, the difficulty uh, in mm-hmm. these really polarized times. And it is really difficult because right. it's almost as if there's a code that, it, so if I wear a mask, let's say, given the current situation, then I'm gonna be discounted. You know, I'm a radical lefty who eating children according to the QAnon <laughs>
1: people. Uh, oh, and so
0: it's not about, um, People really observing your whole self. It's about taking little snippets, like "I'm a vegetarian, so I'm no good," you know, and and how these small bits right. of our identity became such um, markers. You know, talking from one perspective, I'm sure, I'm sure, very liberal people do the same thing. You know, if I sure. see somebody in a MAGA hat, I'm probably thinking, "Uh oh, this is probably not going to be a good conversation," right? right? Uh, so I think we we all have to bring ourselves, we have to rise up about over this and really start to look at all the similarities we have. We all want to be healthy. We all want a good education or we want our kids to have a good education. We want to be prosperous. Right, right. And and of course, science and technology is, you know, a, you know kind of a, a, a royal road to all of those things. Um, even the, all the skilled trades now. You have to know a lot about computers right you know to fix a car or fix a air conditioner and heating as we my my house has not had uh central uh heat for the last oh, month wow. the, the system that was that you know i'm in southern california so it's not a tragedy right uh right uh but you know the system is so complicated <laughs> and so computer based <laughs> that it's been hard to find somebody to fix it so you know these trades that might have once said well i, I just need a high school diploma now you know certainly probably community college and technical training and apprenticeships are necessary but you know there, there's going to be jobs for everybody who who are willing to learn you know what's necessary uh, to learn and and i think mm-hmm. we get lazy when we start blaming you know transsexuals for everything that's wrong i mean that's the right. thing i just read something in congress about some terrible insults toward a, a, a excuse me a transgendered um Right. Person, so you know, I find it you know it's a fascinating time to be in my position uh, because I I get to learn a lot, but it's also it's kind of a troubling time that the, this kind of simmering racism and the, all the nationalism
1: has really right. uh, blossomed. I've been reading a lot on uh, recent, very recent, like political science books that talks about this, and actually a little bit of psychology itself on group identity and how significant it is some things might be tiny but you're so closely associated with the group to the point where there's been research in political science to show that oh i'm gonna skew my viewpoint to fit in with xyz political party because that's my group identity and then in turn it comes to a vicious sort of cycle and then it sort of causes that polarization that we're currently dealing with today and it's just how do we minimize that
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it made me think that As humans, we all want to have an in group. We want to be part of a
1: group. Right, exactly.
0: And, you know, we find a group that we have affinities with, whether it's, you know, just our opinions or they look like us or they have the same education as we do. And, you know, the easy thing is to kind of just go along with them. That's comfortable. That's um, uh, the harder thing is to put yourself out there and be uncomfortable and be with people who, have different views or come from different backgrounds or different heritages or life experiences. I once, I was at a, while I was still at UC Santa Barbara, I went to a great lecture uh, by a a person who was um, a neuroscientist. And he said something like, it's not an exact quote, but he said, you know, our brains have not caught up with uh, our social Mm -hmm. situation. Mm -hmm. Our brains were wired to see difference and equate that with danger mm-hmm. and now we have to retrain our brains to say different maybe fine mm-hmm. you know you look different you speak differently you're from a different part of the world but that right. could be fine but you know when our brains were evolving, that we were still in kind of hunter and gatherer mm-hmm. modes. And his view, now I'm not saying that this was probably 10 years ago, was that we, we had to very, be very purposeful in retraining our brains not to have that automatic reaction
1: mm-hmm.
0: that, oh, you're different, so you're dangerous. And so it's, it has to be a very, you have to be committed to doing it and putting yourself in situations uh, where you can learn from others and you have to listen, right. you know, you can't come in and just say, well, here's my agenda. and Here's the way I, I do it. And that's right. And I can recall, you know, I grew up in New York city, so I had a great advantage because I was surrounded by a very multicultural, mm-hmm. very multi-religious, multi everything environment. And I can remember specific, uh, examples of, you know, visiting Puerto Rican friends, for example, And they told me they didn't like turkey. Mm. And I remember as a kid thinking, who could not like turkey? That's (laughs) unbelievable to me, you know, thinking about Thanksgiving Day. Now that, I know that's very trite, but it it was a series of these like, aha moments, like everybody's not like me. Yeah, but really they're fine. (laughs) You know, I really like them. They're fine. They just don't like turkey. And I do, you know, but it, you know, not everybody has that, that advantage that I had of growing up in a very. A uh, diverse uh, environment and also a very kind of a secure mm-hmm. environment. No, nobody seems scary to me and so on and so forth. So yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I I see I see our current administration trying to hold the olive branch out to people um, and look for consensus and compromise. Uh, I hope it works.
1: How as a president at a you know at CSULB how do you apply that sort of empathy towards others? What type of like when you're thinking about policies in place to help all students? How do you acknowledge pretty much as many groups as you can and try to help them? With the CSU system being so diverse as well, how do you deal with that? Like do you get a lot of data and then you try to go with the best path forward? Do you try to do compromises with these different groups? Like what what would be your approach?
0: Um, that's a good question. You know, I think, um, you know, re- recalling that I'm a psychologist, my first uh, impulse is to listen to people, see what they're really saying. And uh, somebody told me one time, uh, always try to make this as if it's the first conversation. Right. So don't bring a right. grudge into, it. you know, sometimes, because sometimes I've been beat up by a student group or a faculty group or a community group, but try always to say, you know, next time we talk, I'm just going to Try to be open uh, to it, and part of my um, uh, research, uh, actually with my husband, has been in the area of what we call positive psychology. I
1: wanted to mention about that because uh, I actually took a little online course on uh, Harvard uh, in Harvard about positive psychology, and it, oh yeah,
0: yeah, they're famous.
1: It helped me so much in like just reframing things and being being a little more positive about even if our environment is sort of. A little bit of a mess at the moment. It's it's reframing that and being able to, what little step can I take in order to make myself feel better? (laughs) So, yeah.
0: Exactly right. You learned the important message from that course, uh, Richard. Good for you. Good for you. You You know, that reframing and also uh, recognizing um, that uh, to reach a point where people are willing to pull together, they have to feel included, they have to feel valued. You you never get people to compromise with you <laughs> if you right. call them idiots, right? I spend a lot of time uh, every day reaching out to folks. You know, if I see you know in one of our newsletters that a, f- a faculty member has published a book, I might not actually know that faculty member personally, but I always try to drop that somebody a note. Or they were they were interviewed on TV. I try to shoot them an email because I think that in the long run. Our success as a university should be built on the celebration of our strengths, mm-hmm. and if we can celebrate our strengths together, I think we can give each other the mm-hmm. benefit of the doubt. If we, you know, if you believe that, if you believe that I, as president, I'm kind of out right. to get you or cheat you, well then I don't get any benefit <laughs> of the doubt there. Anything I say, you're going, oh yeah, there mm-hmm. she she's you know. But if you've built a relationship with people that's based on their strengths and and mm-hmm. authentically. You know, I I'm in awe of many of the things that our faculty and our students do at Long Beach State. I think that builds a um, a foundation of a relationship mm-hmm. built on trust and um, and valuing. You know, I try to say hello to everybody. I try to remember people's names. I try to you know, mm-hmm. do small things uh, for people that are, certainly are very reasonable. Um may be a little bit of trouble, but it's worth doing things. And I do it, of course, because I that's. Who i am but i also know it has an organizational a positive organizational fit because you can take that what you learn at the individual level in positive psychology and you can roll it up to the right. organizational level and what kind of organizations are mm-hmm. successful so successful organizations have a certain number of attributes you know people have the autonomy they need they get the support they need they get professional development they're you know they're they're successes are celebrated, you know, I forget there's seven right. or 10 of them. I really use yeah. that research um, and try have tried to really in, embed it in the way that I, I speak to people and and uh, mm-hmm. work with people about what, like, in my case, psychology, but I'm sure there's, there's other sources of this right. information as well about what makes people feel involved and engaged and trusting and really wanting for the organization to be successful. Because if you just have people who are there for individual success, then, you know, you're in trouble. Both things should happen at the same time, you know.
1: Do you ever feel sometimes distraught by conflict when you're dealing with people, when some things don't go the way that you want it to be, or there are people sort of yelling at you, not trying to not trying to listen as well? Do, do you ever get down or distraught by that? Because I know. <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. Oh, sure, sure. You know, we, we have situations where uh, you know we get involved in. Usually, I, I think, at least from my perspective, people may not believe this, but uh, you, you know, we're trying to do the the right thing, uh, and you know, then getting people who are just uh, kind of, I get the feeling that well, they're out to right. get you, they're out to destroy your personal reputation mm-hmm. or something like that, and, and it does it does get me down, and you know, but the the thing is that I have a great team. Mm-hmm. At the mm-hmm. university so i can turn to other people and kind of do reality right, checks. <laughs> right did we did we screw up i mean have we done something really bad here do we deserve mm-hmm. this you know and you know sometimes we've screwed up and we go okay all right you're right we should have done it differently mm-hmm. uh, but most times you know we can we can kind of kind of lift each other up. And and you may have heard me talk at times at the university about my commitment to the the research, Carol Dweck's research on growth mindset, which really says, you know, we all all screw up. We all make mistakes. Can you use it to do better the next time? And, you know, that might sound Pollyanna-ish, but the truth is you can't go through life successfully unless you can do that. You can't let every mistake you make be your reason for disengaging. You know, you can't let one bad grade on a test, say, "Well, I don't belong at the university." You know? <laughs> I know
1: that was certainly, that's definitely certainly with me with a certain quiz score at the moment for one of my classes. but <laughs> Yes, yeah. that's that's point. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, but you know, we all have that first um, that, that first impulse is to be down on ourselves and to say, "Oh, this is proof that I should never try to be an engineer or whatever." You know, but knowing that that uh, there's a there's a great there's a great uh, Winston Churchill quote and I'm not sure if I can say it exactly, but he says something like uh, success is uh, going from failure to failure with no loss of mm-hmm. enthusiasm. Uh, and, you know, I'm not quite there yet in my evolution. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> what I say to myself is, you know, was I trying to hurt anybody? No. Was I being lazy? No. Did I make an honest mistake? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and then, and then just say, sorry, right. a lot, you know, sorry. I did that. But it's, it, it, it can be undermining when, I realize it's not about, you know, it's not about the issue. It's about some people's just wanting to undermine the person, you know, I've gotten a lot of flack for being too progressive, too liberal. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I accept that, you know, I have a different perspective and you know what, I, I have the bully pul- pulpit, I'm, I'm the president. So I get to say stuff, you know, I, I hardly, I never mention politics. I always try to put it in an evidence-based right. uh, way. And but usually the attacks are not about the issues. Mm-hmm. It's not that somebody's going to disagree with me. The thing was about that you know, children should not be separated from mm-hmm. their parents. Mm-hmm. We have a ton of research that shows lifelong uh, detriments when children are ripped from mm-hmm. their parents. So I wrote about that. Well, that made people mad because they thought I was attacking the the administration. I wasn't. I was attacking that behavior. Right. And so then it becomes, then it seems like it becomes a very personal attack. How dare you? I, don't, I never want to get an email from you again. And I, I always feel like it rarely comes from students, but when it comes from a student, it, is, it particularly bothers me because I think, well, why did you come to the university if you didn't hear a different opinion? Because I'm really willing to listen to your opinion and then we can have a debate about it, you know? In that case, I have the evidence that it's not good right. for children. To be <laughs> ripped away
1: from parents, you know? I know certainly we've had our... Uh just to tell the audience a bit how we met I, I literally went off during a research conference to ask about the budget issue during the time and whatnot it was a while back but i i think it blossomed into something something very nice <laughs> having this dialogue now it's uh, it's it's empathizing yeah oh thank you i i know with a lot of students and I, i've been reading on books about higher education and the qualms and of the system and whatnot and how how our higher education encourages sort of students to push towards academic achievement to the point where they're not actually thinking about what do they actually want to do with their lives. So in many ways, they want to appease their parents or their local peers. And I've I've had local cases of that. You know, I've had students that say, "I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to pick this major because it's a good major and it's success." <laughs> Uh, how do how do you deal with that? Like especially with our current system of other schools, such as Ivy League, such as Harvard and whatnot, where there's this ever so increasing pressure to oh, we need to increase our admission standards, we need to increase our rankings. How do, how do you deal with that? Because I know a lot of impressionable high school students are deeply affected with that. I know internally I'm deeply affected with that. <laughs> so. How how does that influence your way of talking to the CSU? Yeah, I, I think you hit on a
0: very important point that is at multiple levels. You know, I think we have in the United States, we have become overly enamored with these rankings and test scores. Th- this is not true in every country. It would be interesting that now that we're giving mm-hmm. up mm-hmm. ACTs and SATs as, as admission criteria, what, right. what that will do, right. um, I think it will be a positive change actually. But suddenly everybody had to be tested like crazy mm-hmm. and teachers were being evaluated by that. Schools were being evaluated. But what I talk about all the time, then people who graduate from CSULB and research, there's certain programs at Harvard that are, you know, you know, direct lines into a law firm for example, but that's because other people from Harvard work at that law firm. It's not because
1: the education. People is want to associate themselves as the success. It goes back to psychological group identity oh, I have to be part of X school's prestige because that will show me that I am a good person and I am amazing in in this way and whatnot. And it's hard because it doesn't open internal dialogue with themselves. It doesn't open what they actually want to do. The majority of people going in, the freshmen, for example, they have a wide array of careers that they want to get into. But as they go along in their higher education, and it does not only apply to top universities, but by the end of it, they usually go with a career that is safe, like finance or business or something like that, which I'm not dissing on them, of course, but it's debilitating because the purpose of a university, I would think, is creating minds, not careers.
0: I think many faculty would uh, agree with you that the, the point of coming to the university is not job training. You know, Now, some of our colleges are more you know, specifically oriented to specific careers than others, right? But Uh, the the real basic success story should be that when you leave a university you you found something you love you know how to think you know how to write you know how to speak you you know how to you're civically you're you you recognize your place in the universe so that you're going to be civically uh connected and engaged so you know i hope that you're going to work to save the planet you know but that's just my, Mm -hmm. my 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 position you know uh So, you know, the the purpose of education, especially higher education, doesn't have to be just a job. But, you know, we've made money. Right,
1: right. It's the business of it. There is a lucrative academic industry that is behind all of this and whatnot. College board in particular. Oh, yeah, well,
0: there's a whole other thing. All these billions of dollars that assessment uh, testing companies will lose when everybody drops the SAT it will be an interesting um, turn of events. Uh, and, and the other thing that I you know, have hated about the way we've approached um, this, all this testing and assessment and ranking is that we're really sorting people, right? We're sorting them into top, second, third, fourth tier. We're, we're making decisions on worth and value. That have mm-hmm. that are based on a number that is not mm-hmm. based on a person's kindness or compassion or depth of feeling or aspirations. Mm-hmm. We're saying, well, they they were really good in spatial reasoning or something like that or math. Right. And it, it's really good to be good in math. I you know, it's good to be good in language, but you know, it's really what you do with it that matters, and not that you got a mm-hmm. score. You know, doing right, with right. your your linguistic skills, are you, are you lifting people up? Are you persuading people to do important things? Are you leading a, a, you know, a a cause? Are you you using your math and science skills to create innovation? It's not the score that matters. So in the assessment business, we used to always say, measure what you value. Don't value what is easy to measure. And that's what Mm. these um, Mm. IQ tests and um, SATs and ACTs, they're easy to measure. And so we make Mm -hmm. distinctions among students and not have to really look at the whole student. And this, that's the issue will be. Now we have given up at least uh, temporarily, but I think it will probably be permanent. We've given this up, but you you know that our, we call some of our programs impacted, actually all of our programs are impacted (laughs) too many (laughs) applications. So let's say we have uh, for computer science, there's 300 spots and we have 700 applications and 400 of them have all 4.0s. Well, then we look at the, mm-hmm. then we'll look at the ACT or the SAT and we'll, we'll use that score because that's the easy thing to do. Right. What else, what, right. what's this, what's this young person's story and where did they come from? What are they hoping to do? What activities did mm-hmm. they take place? Did they take part mm-hmm. in? Yeah. You know, at least that for us, but just because, you know, we had last year, 106,000 applications, for our undergraduate programs which was you know the eighth highest in the whole country uh this year down a little bit with the pandemic but it's still right. 104,000 which was highest in the CSU system and i think ninth in the country or something like that it's 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 hard to do right, a comprehensive right. uh profile review of every so you come up with right, these right. you know easier okay they're in or they're out by by a number and, you know, you lose a lot of talent mm-hmm. that way. So it's it's something that's really on my mind, especially now that we've given up the uh, SAT and ACT. And you know the mm-hmm. story behind them, too. You know, how many students come from families where they went to test prep and they learned. But many students didn't have the, uh, they didn't come from affluent enough families to pay for test prep or tutors. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I know I certainly haven't been in that privileged state, but, man, that that hits hard. because. Oftentimes, I still feel self-conscious about it. And it's really nice to hear from you, the president of CSULB, to actually say that. It's it's humanizing, especially with my PhD applications, too. I keep hearing that, oh, this person got instantaneous acceptance to some top school or something like that. And it's internally hard for me because there's there's that group identity where I want to associate with success. and But at the same time, I know it's my own journey and whatnot the struggle of having that and actually having an external dialogue with other people. Sometimes it's, it's difficult because people don't yeah, want to no, share, yeah, share you're, these you're type right. of things. And it's
0: it's difficult and it's <sighs> brave
1: of you to right.
0: to surface it because it's something that, and it happens to everybody and it's happening to the person who uh, got into the school. They're, mm-hmm. they're still going to be questioning themselves because what happens every mm-hmm. time you, uh, you know, you move from one place to the other, uh, I'll just share, you know, my own experience. I was kind of a top high school student, all A's and, you know, through high school. And I went to a small liberal arts women's college in New York York State. And uh, suddenly I'm with, uh, you know, other young women who are all all just as smart as me. And so I entered a new pond, you know, I was in a different pool. And it really was surprising. Like, well, Mm -hmm. I have to work harder because they're all, they're, it wasn't now the high school right. pond now it was the college pond and the same thing happened in you know in graduate school so even when you get into where you want to get in you're you're always faced with some new um, challenges and and it's good that you can notice that about yourself and reflect on it and say you know this is from years of just imprinting commercial imprinting it's not real it's not something that is <laughs> substantive of substantive importance so you, you've already discussed that but sometimes our our right. feelings don't keep up with our cognitions you know and you know you shouldn't worry about it but you still feel it
1: right if it's something that i want to share with fellow students is that those feelings are always going to be there it's going to be the journey where you sort of just have to ride the wave and acknowledge that it's there but at the same time you do you i know that my career path isn't necessarily the most Establish out of the bunch. I have to do a lot of independent research, but ultimately it's something that makes me extremely happy. It makes me extremely passionate because I feel like I can make a difference. I can make an impact. And I hope, yeah. I hope something with a podcast like this, I hope that I can inspire other students to do the same or open the dialogue at the very least. Allow them to think about it because I've struggled with a lot of this type of stuff. It's what you deal with.
0: And we often find, I mean, from, you know, a psychological perspective, we often find that when we see that others have the same challenges, we stop making ourselves somehow exceptionally bad or weak or what's wrong with me. You know, no, I- I'm part of the human race. And this is the way humans are. Humans are, are imperfect and they tend to be jealous. They tend to be... Uh, right sometimes mean-spirited, they tend, they, all these things, you know, and we have to work ourselves out of all of that, uh, and it, but it's a universal condition. And so when I screw right. up, I always say to myself, well, welcome to the human race. Mm-hmm. You've done it again, <laughs> you screwed up. Yeah. You know? But that doesn't make me somehow mm-hmm. exceptionally bad. Uh, you know, when you put yourself in these highly competitive situations, right. like a university, like Cal state, Long beach, like, going to a PhD program, you know, you're putting yourselves, we put ourselves into Mm -hmm. environments that really can bring out the best in us, but can also bring out the worst in us uh, because we, it can bring out the best of us in us because we can Mm -hmm. find our passion, Mm -hmm. uh, really wanna pursue particular topics. We see a path in front of us, but it can bring out the worst in Mm -hmm. us because we can see that, well, maybe we're not as smart as we thought we were, (laughs) or maybe we're not as, you know, socially skilled as we wish we were, because we have a different comparison group. Mm -hmm. But um, so it takes a lot of purposeful focus and strength and asking for help to get through that and to realize, as you said earlier, you're on an individual path and
1: Mm -hmm.
0: hope you have company on that path. You don't wanna be alone. And that's (laughs) so important. I'm glad you said that, you know, nurturing the support group, paying attention to your friends and your special relationships, all of that is part of being strong and creating buffers all the, cause you know, you, you know, especially when you get in the sciences mm-hmm. and PhD programs and I, right. I recall this as a PhD student, you know, people, you know, are always critiquing your ideas <laughs> and, and you have to, and the good news is if you if you have the right mm-hmm. support group, mm-hmm. you kind of mm-hmm. get it, um, you kind of learn from it. And that's the way I feel at Cal state long beach. I have, you know, a team of people, the vice right. presidents, some of the other uh, directors who, you know, we we know that we're on each other's side. We know we'll screw up, but uh, we know we're trying to do the best we can, even though sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, people treat us like we're, we're not. But, and that's that's a great strength. Right. And that's that's a great, that really creates for me, the ability to keep moving forward, because there are cert- mm-hmm. certainly during this pandemic, there was, there has been so much uncertainty, even today, new variants will come, how will the vaccines work and blah, blah, blah.
1: Right, right.
0: I found it so difficult, because I'm used to working from a position of finding evidence and being pretty sure of myself before making a decision. But this has created a situation where we can't be sure. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And you don't know how much risk taking can you do without endangering other people's literally their lives, you know, So it's been a real uh, learning experience. I thought I'd seen everything in higher ed Mm. after 40 years in higher education, but I was wrong, I hadn't seen this. I keep saying to myself, well, aren't you lucky Mm -hmm. to be college president during this time that nobody else has had this experience? Yeah, and you have to do what you mentioned earlier, you have to reframe some situations. (laughs) I have to say to myself, uh, not, oh, woe is me, because this is so difficult. I have to say to myself, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. You know you have a chance to do something that no other csulb president has had to do so there's you know at least it gets me through the day richard that that's what i can say it, it, mm-hmm. one day at, one day at a time
1: one day at a time <laughs> certainly know that. <laughs> I, it's, yeah. ah, that i need a breather from that thinking about that type of stuff it's it's been stressful it, it's nice to hear hear that i'm so glad, and I'm just, so glad. Yeah. Think about CSU and how they have support in the You, it, like you have to on give on, yourself so. credit
0: for accepting support. Not everybody can do that. And so, and seeking support. Those are the, you know, asking for help and accepting help is, uh, you'd think right. it would be easy, but it's not always easy. So, right. You know, it's fun, it's fun talking to you, but I feel like we I better wind up because I have an early morning tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Puts a time limit on it, but uh, it's really been fun talking with you.
1: Oh, yes. Yes, by all means. <laughs> It was really fun talking to you too i hope you enjoyed the conversation i'm certainly going to keep in contact with you uh i wanted to say this on the podcast as well i wanted to thank you so much for doing the letter of recommendation for me for the phd schools it really helped a lot (laughs) i'm very very happy about that uh and i'll definitely keep in contact with you thank you so much
0: i feel that too and i was more than happy to support your dreams for a PhD program. And I will be delighted to hear if you go to Davis, because I have a special Mm. uh, place in my heart for Davis. It's interesting. I mentioned that I was at University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and the first time, and I was there for 12 years. I really loved it. And if it hadn't been for Collie, not liking (laughs) the Nebraska winters, I'd probably still be there. But uh, when I got on the Davis campus, it's also an agricultural, Hmm. engineering, mechanical kind of place, you know? And it reminded me so much of uh, Lincoln, Nebraska that I had a very nostalgic
1: um, (laughs) feeling for it. So
0: good luck, good luck in that. And I'll stay in touch with you.
1: Thank you so much for for being part of the podcast.
0: (laughs) Absolutely, and good luck with the podcast. I think you're trying to make a a really good difference.
1: Bye-bye. Thank you, bye-bye.